G'day and welcome to Occupied, your fortnightly podcast for all things occupation and occupational therapy. Today, I want to share with you one of the most amazing people I think I've met during this process, the wonderful Laura Thayer, who runs OT4BPD. She has a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, and I really wanted to have a chat with her and get her perspective on that lived experience. I think borderline personality disorder is one of the most heavily stigmatized diagnoses within mental health, and I wanted to put a lot of those stigmas to bed and learn how OTs and how clinicians in general can work better with people with borderline personality disorder. So thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. I got a ridiculous amount out of, out of this conversation with Laura. So basically, I wanted to be a physio. And then I started the OT course with the dream of becoming a physio, but I didn't get the score, obviously. Um, I was actually quite unwell during year 12. And I started OT not knowing what OT was. And then it sort of, I went through the course. I got really high marks and I, I enjoyed the theoretical aspects and the models, but I didn't have this connection with OT. And I did two years in rehab and with doing my honours project and I had an awesome supervisor and I still just didn't see that fit between OT and me and how it, I just really couldn't con- get the concepts of rehab. And then I had a mental health placement and then everything sort of changed. <sighs> so where, where was your placement? Like what, what aspect of mental health were you in? So I was in community care. So it was community continuing care team. Mm-hmm. So I was a, did a lot of like case management and that kind of stuff with people. Was, yeah. was it OT specific or was case it more a general one? Uh, it was more general, but I was very privileged in that my supervisors got me to do some OT assessments and I got to do some really OT uh, interventions, which they wouldn't necessarily have the time to do because it's more of a generic role. Yeah. Awesome. That's oh, that's pretty common. Uh, pretty pretty aligned with, with my story as well in that I had not real much interest in mental health until I did a placement and then just fell in love with it and have never looked back. Yeah, it's um, it's quite interesting because before I went into mental health, my attitude was very different. It was uh, that I had grown up believing that people with mental health conditions were selfish and that um, suicide was probably the worst thing that you could do to those around you. So going into that space, I was terrified and I, I really was reluctant to go on it. And I even crossed my mind to sort of pull out of the placement and think at the start, is it really for me? And yeah, it, going through the placement was probably the best and life changing thing for me that I've gone through is that I became this when I had my first mental breakdown. And, uh, it was a time period where I started to realize things weren't going, weren't right. Yeah. For me. And so, and then you graduated from OT after that, obviously. And where did you where did you go after that? 
Um, so after I finished my mental health placement, I uh, it took longer than expected because I had to go down and part-time because I was quite unwell. Uh, and I applied for many, many jobs. So I applied for probably about 60 jobs. And I was I didn't get any interviews out of that, and the process was quite disheartening. <laughs> and then I got uh, a job in community mental health, but then I became unwell again, and then I had um, my first admission into the mental uh, inpatient mental health setting. And then um, after that was a year of just being at home, in and out of hospital. Yeah. And and now you're you're working at the university doing some stuff. Yep. So I'm at Monash Uni, and I love it. I was offered a job. So basically, while I was an inpatient, my honours supervisor heard that I was in hospital, and he asked me to come back and teach. And I've been teaching since. And loving it. Yeah, I love teaching. It's amazing. That's awesome. So you, you kind of hinted that you were unwell at different times and you had an inpatient admission, which is one of the things that we wanted to, to have a chat about because you run, well, a, a website and an Instagram page and all sorts of stuff and Facebook are uh, called OT4 Borderline Personality Disorder. Yep. And you have a diagnosis of borderline. Is that correct? Yes. Yep. Can you Can you tell us? Well, firstly, what is it? What is borderline personality disorder? Yeah, I thought you'd ask that question, actually. (laughs) (laughs) So I came up with the traditional DSM-5 that it's this pervasive and chronic um, mood disorder which is marked with impulsivity and unstable periods of mood and identity confusion, um, fear of rejection, um, periods of instability and uh, chronic feelings of loss and fear of rejection. But my um, my sort of definition for it, which I sort of wrote down, was that it's people who feel extremely, um, ex- emotions extremely and intensely, it's a feeling of loss and identity confusion. It's a mistrust of the world and the people. It's feeling like... You don't know who yourself is in the world and how you fit. And it's tangled with memories and events of trauma that basically haunt every day. Um, I, one quote that really helped me understand what borderline was is actually from Marshall Linehan, who's a psychologist uh, who has a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. And she said that, Borderline individuals are the psychological equivalent of third-degree burn patients. They simply have no emotional skin. Even the slightest touch or movement can create immense suffering. So that was something that really connected to me and how I thought of the diagnosis itself in connecting with it. Yeah, that's that's actually – I've not heard that description, but that's that, – that makes it a lot – clearer to comprehend sorry i'm just gonna get yeah you're right yeah yeah, no worries (laughs) 
so yeah when i read it it just made a lot of sense that we don't have this emotional skin layer that protects us from sort of stimuli or things that happen in everyday life that generally people have a resilience towards but for people with bpd just the slightest touch can and cause quite extreme changes in mood and um, um, can that feeling of loss and agony is so strong um, and it's often I like to think it is like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs in how that the basic needs haven't been met for this population so okay. things like sorry okay yeah, yeah. Uh, so things like um, warmth and safety shelter um, just conditional love and having a, a support network or even the um, a secure attachment growing up creates conflict for you now. And um, I guess as I was going through my fourth year placement, I didn't recognise these things. And then as I was seeing patients come into the ward, I recognised the stories they were telling me and that these are stories that I had sort of put down in layers and layers and, and put down really deep inside me and had tried to uh, hide or keep them covered. And then I guess being in such a supportive environment, such as the community mental health team, it just sort of came out. And then um, this, uh, yeah, just unreleased, uh, like released Pandora's box, I guess, was the experience after that. Yeah. <laughs> So, is that that feeling uh, like you're talking about, like the burns feeling, not having that that emotional skin? Is that something that sort of, I guess, in hindsight now you can go, well, I kind of recognise when I started feeling like that, or is it something that's just always been like that? Um, it's yeah, that's a really good question. I think I, it's really clear now, sort of in my teenage years. Um, when I was a child, I guess I can reflect back now, there's certain elements of it coming through of um, having intense emotions and um, even doing things that were quite extreme for a child. But the the feeling of re- the reactive emotions was quite high, I guess, in in those teenage years where you're trying to find your identity and you don't have that secure attachment or that sense of who you are. And so um, it's really confusing. And then um, it it can make things really hard in terms of knowing are you expressing the right emotions in the right situation. They haven't been typically modelled to be correct. So it is quite hard, yeah. Do you... So, so this is something another sort of I guess theory idea type thing that I've had is with not just BPD but with a whole range of different uh, like mental health diagnoses, a lot of them seem to be, or, or I try and get people to look at them as just extreme versions of normal behavior or normal emotion. So, you know, like depression is the extreme version of feeling down, feeling sadness schizophrenia is sometimes the extreme version of processing the reality and things that are going on around them or you know hallucinations are the extreme version of processing sensory information which then sometimes gets a bit jumbled and that kind of stuff do you do you think that uh that 
sort of viewing borderline personality disorder as like I guess that extreme uh, version of emotional processing well, I can't think of the exact sort of way to frame it but that like is the extreme of what most people would normal like their normal emotional processing I think that if you look at it on a continuum it's that it's either like good or bad it's either um, devastating or extremely really exceptionally great so our emotions it's like when you think of a pinball and it, as it goes down it's like slots into one slot it's that all those emotions are like very very heightened and it's just very um explosive i would say it is i would like you're saying it could be a heightened sense of those emotions that we know um and we and the, the individual with bpd just doesn't know how to contain those or show them in a safe way or hasn't in their childhood it hasn't been um, validated or they haven't been allowed to express these emotions. Mm-hmm. So then in the adult years, it, it can come out and like for me, it did. Um, I also think that a big part of the behaviors come down to the, the attachments we form with, um, our caregivers and how that, um, really plays a big part in forming a secure attachment and how you show what you need. So if you need something, how, how do you actually convey that to the person? And so for people with BPD, they've learned to convey that in extreme emotions because it's never been heard. Because I think one of the, and I, I want to get into this a, a little bit later on, is this, in my clinical experience, probably more so than, any other diagnosis, there is a lot of stigma around borderline personality disorder and working with people with borderline personality disorder. And I can say categorically most of it's rubbish because I've worked with quite a few people who have borderline personality disorder. But one of the things that, and you kind of touched on, I guess, the the probably the more the genuine reason for it, but one of the, the things that I hear a lot on on wards and in teams is that quite often these behaviors are just for attention and you mm. know they're, they're just trying to get attention and you should ignore it and, and whatnot where mm. I think your description is probably more is better it's I guess to a degree it's for attention but that's it's almost a trained reaction is that kind mm. of what you your like your experience of it is it's more yeah. a trained reaction to get you know like you were talking about like maslow's you know you want to try and get those uh connections you want to try and get that safety you want to try mm. and get that warmth uh etc yeah i think a good example of this is when i come home from work and i'm very distressed and so my husband will be here in the house and instead of going straight up to him, giving a kiss and saying hello, I go back to thinking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and the needs that are are not met. So it would be often hunger or um, I haven't gone to the bathroom or I'm really cold. And those things can be traumatic for someone with BPD because they haven't necessarily had those things when they were a child. So um, I remember being extremely cold as a child or um, being extremely reactive to physical touch. So if my husband was to greet me at the door um, with a physical kiss, I would probably be very, very reactive and that would be not 
wouldn't be a great situation. So he knows, he's learned that I need to hop in the bath, I need to have food in the bath, <laughs> and um, and preferably go to the toilet before hopping in the bath. <laughs> but <laughs> um, because the, I realise that he can't fulfil those needs, I need to do that, but I need to also identify what are the needs that I need met and, and the steps. So if I... That's the really challenging thing for the person with BPD is actually recognizing what is it, the emotions inside me that I need to have met first before I can communicate with someone else or before I can, um, I can go out and, and, and be in a different space that I'm not used to. And, and it also comes down in the safety part as well. So, um, having Lily, I might actually say hi to Lily before I say hi to my husband because Lily is like this constant sensory, um, safety space for me where um I take her everywhere I go so she's I feel like she's a part of me and, and that um she'll even hop in the bath with me because that's part of being safe is and, having that and Lily's, Lily's the dog yeah <laughs> who's currently sitting on your lap and being very cute <laughs> so without understanding those these are the needs I need met my reactions prior would have been to shout to scream to throw furniture um, to punch objects, still to self-harm, um, threats of, not threatening, threatening, but I mean saying I really want to end my life, those things, and not knowing. I can still feel those things because that's part of BPD, but there are days where I can manage those basic needs and if I'm feeling good, I can I can manage them. And it's, I guess it's that sense of empowerment that if you do have the right training and the right, um, awareness into those, what is the emotions and how do they feel? How do they feel in the body? What do they look like? And then a step, the next step to meeting those needs, it can give you a sense of control over the emotions and the raging. Yeah. Yeah. So even just like, obviously that's a good example of, I guess, the types of overreactions that you were talking about before is most people probably wouldn't link uh, you know, needing a bath or needing to feel, you know, like your basic needs are met with uh, yelling and screaming and throwing furniture and that kind of stuff. And I think that's mm. that. And in my experience, working with other people who have who've had borderline, that's the that's the kind of the the reactions don't necessarily have anything at all to do with, you know, even sometimes what they're saying and what they're actually yelling about. Like they're not going to yell at you. Mm generally and say i need a effing bath blah 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 it's usually something (laughs) completely different and it's often uh in working with someone it's about kind of unpacking or being able to step back and go okay i understand there's a lot of distress going on right now uh and I'm probably not going to read too much into what's being said mm-hmm. often. It, yeah. it, it does happen that sometimes it, it is to do with what whatever's happened. But it's about, well, you know the person well enough and, like, you, you're, you're very self-aware and you know, like, exactly what needs you need at different times. So when you get home from work, et cetera, you know exactly mm-hmm. what needs being met. Quite often when we're working with people, they might not be at that stage yet. So it's about trying to unpack yeah. it a bit and... Uh, I guess try and explore and maybe even try mm. a few things. Like it's obviously not going to be that they just really no. don't like that chair and they wanted to throw it kind of thing. So <laughs> it'll be something like you've described so well already about, you know, getting some kind of basic needs met. 
And I would imagine for some mm. people it might be, you know, they need a hug. Like it might be that they need mm. that connection or that physical pressure or, or whatever it might be. Mm. And mm-hmm. I, I would I would also imagine it's it's quite it's gonna be very individual. It's gonna be different for yeah for everyone. Yeah. And it's really something that I really enjoyed was doing a sensory profile and getting a sense of what are the, the things that I'm defensive against and the things that I crave. And another thing I do is when I come home from work, if I really need deep pressure, I get my husband just to lie straight on top of me and that his his weight is con- completely containing for me that it feels like the emotions want to leave my body. But when he lies completely on top of me, it's just so grounding that I'm just, that that dissociative state can be reduced and that I'm back in my body. Uh, so it's, I guess it's really down to trial and error with some um, people and finding out what they do like. For me, I know I hate being touched, but I love being cuddled by Lily. So, um, yeah, it's, and I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't even think about that. So it's really exploring those different senses. Uh, and what- I've heard someone else who, um, liked deep touch from their partner just laying on top of them as well. Yeah. I've never heard of it until until that was only recently and I've not heard of anyone doing that. I'm like, that's actually really clever. <laughs> Very resourceful. <'Cause- laughs> <laughs> Another thing is like um, Lily, because she's, she's only seven kilos, but having that, if I can place her or she sits on my chest, that feeling of that loss and that pain where I carry it in my chest, if she sits on my chest, it actually is just really containing and um, grounding and um that warmth that she provides is uh, is incredible. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. So you mentioned before uh, about a dissociative state. Are you able to mm-hmm. tell like what what is a dissociative state? Yeah, I would say whenever you're feeling if if you've had that state where you've been really really stressed and you feel that you you are not in your body. So for me, one time I realized it, I was looking down at my body and my hands and I, they weren't part of me. They, um, it's like I, if I touched myself, I didn't exist. Um, it's having foggy glasses on that you, you're not in the world. You're sort of out of the world. Um, sometimes it can be a self preservation thing that I, I can do. So if I'm very stressed, um, in particularly shopping, I can I can bring it on, which is not an, a good thing to do sometimes. Um, but it's about um, I guess helping you manage the situation that you're in. So often people learn it as a as a as a behavior that they've they've done to try and get through trauma, which has been through for a long period of time. So I would say I was in a dissociative state from probably eight years of age. Till probably about twenty, um, no, even twenty-four when I went on that mental health placement. So just constantly in and out of that state to try and get through what I was going through. So it's it's like the dissociative part of the label is more like you're dissociating from yourself mm-hmm. in a way. You kind of look at yourself, uh, I guess, from an external point yeah. of view as opposed to being in your own body it's it's like um you're leaving a shell so that the emotions aren't there so that if you can leave your body um it means that you can't feel the hurtful things or the 
the trauma you're feeling. Um, you're not there to feel it. So you don't question things. It just happens. Yeah, and I think, again, going back to the like extreme, uh, like the spectrum, kind of looking at it as a spectrum, again, it's, it's, mm. it's something that most people have probably felt but on a much smaller scale like uh i know examples that i've had is like when you've just been given like some gutting news of you know someone passed away or something like that and you just get that Mm. completely sunken feeling and the world shuts down and you're not yeah there's it's usually for a couple of minutes even it's just Mm. you're not you're not where you just were kind of thing. Your body shuts down to try and save yourself from that anguish, from yeah. that pain, from that hurt. And I think the dissociative state that you describe is essentially that, but probably on a more frequent and a, mm. I guess a, a more extreme scale at times. Mm. I, I think for, um, for me, I describe it like, you know, the times when you drive home, and you drive home and you don't realize how you got home. Like you got through all those traffic lights and, and things like that. Sometimes it's, it's also like, um, I know this, it's like a normal part of coping. I'm going to just switch off. And yeah, I think it is a part of switching off and preserving yourself. Uh, like for me, it, that's what it has become. Uh, so when there's a lot of stimuli for me, such as noise or light, um, movements, um, my body type takes it as a threat, and so that it, it the brain just naturally just wants to shut off. So, do you yeah. would you say that you're, uh, in your experience, your body is reading more things as threats than like the average person? Yeah, so I would say, like, right now doing this interview, I was very stressed. So before it, I made sure that I was doing mindfulness beforehand. Um, I've got a hot water bottle on me and a blanket. I've got Lily. Um, I've made sure the lights are, I've tried to contain the lights down, um, and tried to con- control the temperature in the room. So because I'm just so sensitive to things going on and I, I perceive them as threats, I think that, but there is an emotional underlie, like, like emotional reason as to why something might be a threat. So, particularly like the temperature control or um, the, the sensation of touch. Um, there's often a reason why that particular sensory experience is, um, is, can be a threat or perceived as a threat. So it's not generally like just a random thing and there's usually specific things for specific yeah. people? Yeah. So, for example, I can't be in the kitchen when my husband's cooking, so... Any sound that comes from the kitchen is really um, can send me into a dissociative state, so I try to avoid being in the kitchen at times. Um, being in a shopping centre is really hard for me because there's a lot of um, a lot of threats. You can't control what other people are doing. If you're going into a lift with other people, that is really really um, stressful. You don't know what's going to happen. I suppose, um, and it all comes back to that lack of trust in people. I think if you've been um, sexually abused or there's some sort of abuse, you don't, you lose trust in people and, mm. um, threats are very easily, you become hyper vigilant just to looking around and seeing those threats. Um, and, and linking that with the dissociative state is that 
I don't want to feel those emotions to do with that that memory or that traumatic event. Therefore, I will switch my brain off. Yeah. Well, obviously done, uh, like through your OT for BPD. Uh, I'm assuming you've spoken to quite a few people, quite a few other people who have borderline personality disorder. Is yeah. your is your experience of it pretty? Uh, like I guess similar to to theirs, like in terms of like, or is it is everyone's completely different, or are there some correlations? I, yeah, no, definitely. I think we all struggle with identity formation. I think that's one of the biggest things I've seen as um in amongst us is that we struggle to identify who we are, and that changes from space to space. And I think another thing is that really, really self-esteem, low self-esteem, self-hatred for oneself, um, believing that your actions deliberately hurt other people is another thing, uh, and believing that you're unworthy of love. And um, I think those are sort of the commonalities. We all have very impulsive moods and we are very defensive. I would say that um, particularly if you put me in a group with other VPDs, not assumptions, maybe it is, but people with people, um, it is very hard, like, because our emotions are so full on. So if you have another person that's full on, you, it's sort of like you're, you're creating. Bouncing off each other. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and because we're actually very empathetic, we also like to empathize with the strong emotions, but then that creates distress in ourselves. So, um, yeah, there's definitely things, commonalities. Um, I try not to, for a safety mechanism, go into um, what people have been through, but I try to talk about the daily struggles that they have in in their occupations. Yeah. And so assuming for a, a period of your life when you're experiencing, say, these dissociative states and stuff, you probably – weren't aware of what was going on other than that you were feeling the distress and that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah. What did you do? Because you're obviously very self-aware now. You know what's going on. Like what was the turn? Where did you learn that, I guess? Where did you get that self-awareness yeah. about how to, I guess, manage uh, day-to-day from? Yeah, so uh, it all comes back to my fourth-year placement. Um I was terrified about going on it and I wanted to make sure I felt in control and I, what I did was I did as much reading as I could, like theoretically about different conditions, nothing I would re- would have read about BPD. I even remember getting books on BPD and it didn't click that that was something I had. Um, and so I did a lot of reading and then going into that open space where there was an educator who was so willing just to sit with me and share and then I had other things going on and then they, they sort of picked up in me that my my mood or something was um, that I was changing. Even in that short period of time, it was like that trust I had developed in that person was incredible and I'm so thankful for those two supervisors I had. Um, and I started to, the first thing I did was I thought I might have, may have depression. So I emailed my um, unit um, one of my tutors, who's now one of my close friends, and said that I'm I'm really struggling. Something's not right. I need to stop placement. I need to stop OT. And then within 24 hours, I had support in place, but we, I didn't know what was going on. So I went to the GP and I said, 
I've got chronic fatigue. <laughs> and that was, so that was my first, I was not going to have a mental illness. I, I, like I was arguing with him. Mm. I went and spent $700 at the naturopath because I wanted answers in terms of natural remedies. He came back, I went back to him and said, things aren't still aren't proving. And he said, look, I, I think you may have depression. And then there was a big argument with my doctor, who I really respect and love. Um, but there was this slow, slow turning of what I had been taught about mental illness, slowly being challenged within myself. And I remember jotting everything down into, a, into the PERI model. And thinking about, okay, well, this is what's going on for me as a person. This is what's my occupations that I'm having trouble with. And this is how the environment has been so, so difficult. And I remember showing that to my husband and he was so shocked about how much was going on that it was like a, a sort of the first point in the awareness of this is finding, finding actually a holistic look at it. On paper was the first thing I did. Yeah. Had you so? What I guess. What did you did you seek help? Like once you did, you still think you had depression after that, or what was the the I guess the process? Yep. So I was diagnosed with depression, and then um, I was. I started seeing a psychologist and things got worse. So um, things sometimes when you've been through trauma, there's I think it takes a long time to start things to start getting better. They often get worse before they get better mm. is what I've encountered and a lot of people, other people have encountered. Yeah. So things got worse and um, I was at home and then I had several – Attempts on my life that led to my GP thinking, I think there's something more going on and leading to a referral to a psychiatrist who's sort of an expert in the area. And, um, he, my first meeting of him, he said that we've, we've got to admit you. And that was the first time I admit I had seen him. And so that was a shock and I didn't want to go. I, um, it, I was, I remember arguing with them that I didn't want to go and that, um, he wanted it to be my choice to go. And eventually he thought that it, if we can do this as a partnership, I'll be there every day for you and I'll come see you. Um, we, you can, we can work through this and this is going to be a point in where you can just look after yourself and, and just, well, that's all you have to do. There's going to be nothing else but you just recovering. And that period, so I spent about three weeks in hospital and um, after that I was discharged and then I had a couple more months where I, so it was, it was struggle, I was, it was very hard and then I had another admission and on that second admission it had been thrown around slowly about the idea of BPD and I, because I had this rapport with my psychiatrist I was able to actually listen to what he was saying and slowly, slowly come to the idea that I had this diagnosis. And so he had seen me for about a year after that. And then um, he had a second opinion by someone who's 
an expert in um, sort of youth um, mental health and he also, we had a, a joint assessment and I was diagnosed then. Um, and I think that was really part, an important part was that it wasn't just thrown on me. It wasn't a diagnosis that I, it wasn't hidden from me either, mm. but it was slowly unveiled and my behaviours were slowly being recaptured and he would tell the story of how I came in one time and this is what I did and how that sort of was correlates with the diagnosis of BPD. And he started slowly explaining the traits, each one by one, on different occasions. And then um, when I had the diagnosis, then I was fully aware that, yeah, I had, I, I can, I'm accepting that I have this. I don't want to have it. I hate it. Mm. But I, I, I agree. Yeah. And I assume during that process too, you were probably doing a lot of your own research and reading into it as well. Yeah, I did so much reading into it, and um, I found some really great resources that um, I'll probably list off <laughs> at the end. But um, yeah, I think I know it's silly, but Pinterest was really helpful for me, and that that's where I found that um, Marshall Linehan quote. And that was when I started making boards about BPD and, and reading about other consumers' experiences. Like vision it, vision board type things? Yeah. Oh, like Pinterest a, boards. Yeah, Pinterest, okay. yeah. Like gotcha. a vision board, yeah. Yep. And um, I started, I went on the Mighty and I started reading about, uh, subscribed to anything to do with BPD and started reading about the experiences of others so that I was, I became more aware and I could identify when this was happening and put in the strategies in place that other consumers were trying. And I think that was great about that community is that we were all trying, um, just trying to find a way of understanding BPD and understanding how can we actually put things in place to help us. Did you, because I know, I don't know if you ever, uh, are you on Twitter? I don't know if you've ever been on Twitter. Oh, not really. <laughs> I get very overwhelmed with it. <laughs> it's. I think that happens to everyone. But I just know that. I uh, and I haven't been, haven't seen it in quite a few years. But when I first started getting involved with OT and online communities and that kind of thing, there used to be a really huge, uh, like BPD community on Twitter. Mm. Uh, and I know. I was just trying to find. I can't remember the username. There was another OT. Uh, who was involved and had a blog and all that sort of stuff, and they used to run like they weren't necessarily they weren't like similar to like OTs run CPD chats, but it was more like a support kind mm. of chats with certain hashtag and that kind of stuff. Um, you found any sort of I guess other communities in weird places like you know you obviously found your your place in, in Pinterest. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Um, my um church group has been the sole core of my journey. I think uh, through whole diagnosis to many admissions to constant. I don't know what to do in this situation. What can I do? So, um, or sending out a an, a really I'm struggling with this situation. Can you please pray for me? That has been a constant thing for me. Is my my um my support group there. I also created a group called Grow, my grow group. And in that group, I added people that I trusted 
to learn about the diagnosis along with me. And in that, I gave them a list of strategies that if I called them in, in sort of crisis, they had to be willing and, and to and take space for themselves to be part of this group. Um, but if I was unwell, that they would be on that day, rostered for that day, and I could call them. And they would then go through a list of strategies that I had already given them and we would work through what I could do in that day to help keep me safe. And that might also involve going out for coffee. So I had about 30 people and they were rostered on for one day of the month um, and there was a backup person in case that person couldn't contact me. But this was particularly after my first mission because I knew that I really needed support and without that I was it was very hard. Um, and I would just keep going into ED and then out of ED. Was that, Another, was that an idea that you came up with or was that something that was suggested? Because that's really cool. No, so, yeah, so that was something I just thought I, I really needed. And um, I really love Facebook groups and I think you, they're so powerful and what you can actually put up there and contribute in the community of people that are willing to learn. Um, and that was just something that I thought would help. Yeah. That's awesome. It's sort of like the meal train, you know, like when there's an app where you've got someone comes out of hospital and you organise meals after they've been discharged. They might have been pregnant and had a baby and you organise meals for different days of the week and you drop them off. I haven't heard um, of that. But yeah, I, but so that's I like it. I, um, <laughs> awesome. Well, there's, there's a million-dollar idea in that for you. <laughs> set it up yeah so um, I the idea was that hopefully I could create grow groups for other people yeah but um, it's funny you haven't mentioned it I, like since you've mentioned it it was only it was a part of my recovery for about a year and I was so connected to it and then it's just like it's just gone so um, like I still call on those people but it might not necessarily be that they need to be rostered on for that day anymore yep. yeah it just stopped needing it as much. Like, yeah, or so I, yeah, because like there was a period where I was self-harming and I was suicidal every day and I didn't know how to manage it and these people were the people that they were my colleagues from Monash, they were people that were from my church, they were friends, they were people that had their own mental illnesses and they just said, yeah, I want to be alongside you and support you. So um, okay. naturally... Even though I didn't, like, it was actually an opportunity for me to get to know them deeper on a personal level as well, and then it's been a reciprocal thing. So yeah. um, I've been able to support them because they've understood the trauma that I've been through. So um, it's been really special. And now that that's, grow group has become more of my um, a core group of people that I message when I'm, um, I'm needing support. Yeah, I I love that idea. That's a fantastic <laughs> idea. I can't believe I've never heard of the food one. I think even that is an amazing one. idea. <laughs> it's really good. Um, I actually, when I think people used it when I came out of hospital, they um people dropped off meals for me when I when I got out of hospital. So that was really good too. That's super yeah. handy, especially seeing like even nothing to do with BPD, but that. Most uh, people coming out of a mental acute ward 
that period, I think it's seven days post discharge is like the high risk period yeah, for that yeah. that transition back into you know, community and work and life and mm-hmm. whatever else is going on for them. Like that's a high risk period. So I think having that yeah. that added support even for that period, whether it's for food or whether it's just someone to call, like that's that's fantastic. I love that. Thank you. <laughs> Patent it. Um, did you ever, and I, I think I already know the answer to this, but did you ever actually have any input with OT throughout your, your journey? Unfortunately, no. Um, which has been a big part of why I set up OT for BBD is because I had that admission to Xavier and it was so overwhelming that I remember screaming for an OT, like I really, I just wanted an OT um, just to help give me a blanket, give me something to suck on after I'd been vomiting mm-hmm. or some, or just someone to sit by me because I had that, I knew OTs were so concerned about the environment. And after that experience, I was really disappointed that there was no like role. I didn't know what the role of OT and ED was. And, um, I've actually, no, I have encountered one OT and I did acceptance and commitment therapy and I loved it. I only, but I only got to do a few weeks with her. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to pinch, but yeah, I, I, there's such a huge part that is missing in inpatient care where OTs can be, where other disciplines might have sort of taken on the role of OT in some ways. Even in art therapy, um, I'm, I have an art therapist and she's amazing, but it could be an OT that runs that group. And even in um, when I think about community care and how I've been discharged, I've never been discharged to an OT in the community. So I've never had that input, how to learn how to cook. I've done all these things myself. I never learned how to cook. I never, I didn't know how to put washing in the washing machine. Um, I still struggle with knowing how to just boil something simple, um, how to buy clothes, how to use money, money handling. I never, I was never taught how those things. Mm-hmm. So my husband did a lot of the training for me. And um, even knowing simple conversations in the direction of, okay, well, problem solving, how do I manage this? What is, how do I, um, how do I catch public transport? Those sort of things I was never taught, which is really an area where, is sort of lacking. I think that there needs to be a, a bigger um, linkage between inpatient, whether that's private or public, and the OTs that we refer to in the community. So your the, the so the ward that you were on didn't have an OT on on the ward. No, okay. No. And I think that's uh, it. Fairly common in Queensland. Um, and I'm not sure what the difference is. Like I've worked on multiple inpatient wards um, as an OT. Uh, but I, I'm hearing more and more and more, and there are a couple of the bigger hospitals in Queensland now that don't have OTs on the ward. And I, again, I, mm. I think it's a – and I've said it on this podcast a few times – I think it's a very difficult position from an OT's perspective, and I don't think it's a position suitable for new grads – but I still think no. it needs to happen. Um, it, mm. it's, it's a very important position for setting people up 
uh, I guess, for that transition back into their life, back into community, back into engaging in the things that they need to do, they want to do, et cetera, all those lovely fluffy mm-hmm. OT things that we like to talk about. Um, but, yeah, it's 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 hard, I think. I think I, I wonder whether you feel like you were – I guess advantaged in a small way by having your own OT training and being able to, like like you you spoke about before, being able to put your own experience into the PEO and using that to explain like, you know, to your husband what was going on, et cetera. A lot of people, majority Mm. of people obviously wouldn't have the, the background knowledge that you have going into that similar situation. Mm. And I'm very fortunate. I've got amazing OT friends and, um, for me, they knew how important work is for me and the, the days that I don't have work and the days that I'm, I'm quite unwell. So they know that work is such an important part for me and I've had OTs help me, my friend, like they're their colleagues, help me grade my return back to or starting of being a teacher at Monash. So um, I'm really thankful for the, the OTs I've, I work with. They're amazing. But I'm very, very fortunate to have that and to have a workplace that, recognizes and I'm so open about my be- having BPD that they know that there's days where Laura is a little bit funny or might be a little bit out of out of it and those are the days to check up on her and see if she got all her resources, if she got going to the right room, she's got a timetable, those sort of things. Because they're on the they already know the impact of sort of health conditions and the impact of the environment. Mm. But for people that don't have an OT or don't have that knowledge it makes me extremely sad and very, very upsetting to think also to hear about some of the comments that I've had come back from OTs or students were, um, being supervised by OTs and some of the stigmatising comments I've heard as well um, where I think that we could be making such a huge potential for this population. So just something that I, I picked up on um, uh predominantly in how you've described your experience with with BPD is thinking about it with our core OT hats on. Um, a lot of the, the the description that you've given to it is to revolve around specifically the environment. So mm. when, obviously, you know, when we're teaching OT and we're thinking about OT, we talk about, you know, that OTs can modify the occupation, they can modify the person, they can modify the environment, et cetera. Um, depending on what the injury or illness or choice or whatever it is, whoever it is we're working with. Do you think that Mm. in working with people with borderline personality that the environment is the biggest focus or it just happens to be for you? No, I think it is the biggest. It should be the biggest focus. I think as soon as you walk into that room and you've got someone with BPD, you need to be thinking about how is the room set up? How are you set up in the room? How is that? Is that person comfortable? Have they got a blanket? Are they cold? Are they hot? Do they want food? Like, do they, do they need that in the environment? Can mm-hmm. they access it? Um, even just, just, yeah, there's so many things about the environment that I now see that impacts on me, like colors of walls. You wouldn't even like think about that, but being in a, an acute ward, I guess you think about how stagnant things are and how that can, Things just bounce, bounce, bounce. So, um, yeah, definitely. 
everything I think about it, it does come back to the environment. Like my home environment is so structured in a way that it supports my recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, Lily is part of the environment. My husband, the support and the care is out there. They do such an amazing job to be partnered with someone with BPD. And they are huge in the recovery of people with BPD, but they are unrecognised in lots of things. Funding in terms of funding and political structures. To get NDIS if you have BPD is, wow, that's crazy. To get it is amazing. But to get it, that, yeah, this, yeah, like you're saying, the environment, it is so important. And I think that's the really where OT comes into an important interplay of thinking about that person and the environment and the occupations. Yeah. So, and one of the things I'll reiterate, because I've said this before on the podcast, is one of the things I want OTs to think about is when you're working with someone, you are part of their environment. So you need yeah. to take yourself into account as well when when looking at that stuff and mm-hmm. and that all that therapeutic use of self stuff that you get taught mm-hmm. and you get hammered home when you're at uni and when you you start your practice, etc. There's a reason that we bang on about that stuff at uni is because yes. it is very important and you are part of that person's environment for. You know, the two days or five years, however long you're working with them, you are you become part of their environment. So you can have an impact on that person by changing something about yourself, like how you deliver a message, the tone of your voice. Obviously, I would assume you being sensitive to colors and stuff. What you're wearing probably can have Mm -hmm. an impact on on the person that you're you're linking Mm with. Um, Yeah. Oh, I had a really good question. I've forgotten it. it. Happens at least once an interview. I forget what I was talking about. <laughs> oh, I forgot. We're at the room. Oh, that's right. Got it. Um, for people that you talked about uh, being able to like uh, provide, you know, blankets and temperature and whatever. It's like setting up the room, etc. For mm-hmm the person that you're working with might seem like a bit of a stupid question, but how, if, if it's say you're the first time you're meeting that person, how do the, how does the clinician find that information without, because I think, I guess one of the big worries that I hear from a lot of clinicians is anything I say is going to, mm. is there any advice you might have for someone on how they can find out even just that basic um, how to make someone comfortable without either worrying about triggering someone or something or, yeah, is there any advice you, you've got for clinicians that might be able to help navigate that particular situation? Yeah, I think it, it depends where you ask the questions as well. So if you're asking in the patient's room where they're alone and they can feel quiet if they're Sorry, if they feel unsafe, they're not going to answer these questions to you. I think um, if you're going into a room, you're a male, if, particularly if you're a male and it's a female and you're going in and you're asking how can I make you feel safe, that's not a great start. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, <laughs> but I think if you can do it in a way that you pass the patient on the corridor and say, hey, my name is whatever, Laura, and... I'm here to care for you. I'm really concerned. If there's anything that I can do for you, please let me know. But then follow that up again so that because you get a lot of that, but if it it isn't followed up again, then that person won't trust you. So you need to follow up. So 
Um, the best, one of the best nurses I had for me was I was crying in the first time I'd been admitted and he came into the room and he didn't say anything. He just, he just came into the room and sat down and made himself eye level with me. Um, he sat a good distance away from me so that I felt safe and I was in the bed and I was sort of under the covers of the bed. And he went, first thing was he did, he said, Oh, you, I'll get you some tissues. You need tissues. And he just got the tissues. And he said, then, are you warm? Have you got a, have, do you need another blanket or a pillow on your bed? And then he got that for me. Um, and then he came back. He always left the door open. He never had it completely shut. And then he said, you know, you're in a safe space. Um, I, I want this to be a safe space for you. I'm your nurse and I'm going to be here while you're admitted in hospital and I'll be coming to see you quite frequently. Is there anything that I can do for you right now to help you feel better? And obviously the answer would be no. <laughs> um, he started, so he started by saying, can I share something with you? And he started by saying, I've been in a situation where I've been in a really hard time myself. And you know what? You're actually in a really good space being here. And the conversation was quite brief. And then he left and he came on, checked on me and made sure I had my dinner. So it's, I think it's about brief conversations and starting to plant the seed and then also bringing the resources to the person so they feel like I was too terrified to leave my room at times. So if you can make that person feel safe in, in their own room um, is another thing. So, and he didn't forget me. So the next time I went back, I saw him and he was so happy. He just said, my smiley's back. <laughs> and I just, it was just like I was nearly in tears because this nurse would see thousands and thousands of people, but he had remembered me. Yeah. And it made all the difference. So that planting of the seed wasn't just the first admission. And I remember another nurse saying, look, even if they come back for a second admission, that is fantastic because it's been preventative. We've been, we've mm. stopped something from happening. Yeah. And, um, I just thought, well, I'm back and he's here. I know I can go to him for help. So, and there's been amazing nurses that I've, I've encountered that have had that approach. The, some of the worst nurses, I, I think, are the ones that knock on my door and would say, I'm your nurse, come and get me if you need anything, and then would just leave. So I wouldn't even know their name or I'd forget their name and I wouldn't come ask them for help. And I think that's like you so, were talking about earlier, like it's about that connection and that's if you don't make that connection, mm -hmm. you've got nothing. There's nothing, nothing to build on if you don't have that yeah. connection. I think the point is, is that BPD, people with BPDs so do not trust people and they're so guarded and they automatically think that people are there to hurt them. So if you can go in feeling vulnerable and creating yourself to be in a vulnerable and a level space with them, that will be the turning point, I think. For me, having a nurse come in and say, hey, I've been through a really shitty time this has been my encounter of a, of a situation it's and and obviously saying this is nothing like what you're going through but i want to know that i have these emotions too or i have these these scary thoughts too or mm. 
I've had that experience and I want to know that you know that I'm here for you. I think without that vulnerability, you're just another another person coming in to ask me questions. And that's been the count for the same situations for me is that I've had one person come in, assess me, do all their risk management assessments, find out all my trauma, and the next day walked past me in the corridor and then said nothing. I think that, and I even gave them an opportunity. I said, oh, do you mind coming back and sharing a little bit about your culture to me? And they didn't come back. And I thought you had an opportunity to sort of plant a seed and start a conversation with someone in such a vulnerable place and you didn't take the opportunity. So sometimes patients will give you opportunity. They might ask really silly questions, but take that opportunity. I love asking um, nurses that come in, can, can you tell me about your background? Can you tell me about where you studied? Because you know that I, I'm an OT. I love knowledge and theory. So there are subtle things that people with BPD will do you just got to be intuitive and aware and it also hold that space of emotions for them. And uh, I think that's really, I, I, again, coming back to spectrums, I think those communication skills are stuff that most OTs hopefully have. <laughs> it's just a matter of implementing them almost in a, a gentler way, you know, in mm. for lack of a better term. Because I think that's the same with anyone who's experiencing, like, in terms of communication skills, anyone who's experiencing uh, some kind of distress or grief or anything like that, or trauma, they're going through something, you don't want to just, you know, barge in there, hey, how you going? Like, that's not how you do it. I, I think being able to, I, I think OTs, especially in my experience, especially sort of newish grads, sort of three, four years out, sort of up to about that point, have this thing where they need to try and make connection as fast as possible. Like they're still working on a time crunch. And I'm like, there's some situations where, yeah, that's fine. A lot of situations where that's not even not going to work, it's actually going to work against you. Because um, as soon as you... trying to think of a decent metaphor but i can't <laughs> i was thinking as soon as you push too hard you're the walls are going up and you you've you know you've, yeah. shit, you've shit the bed you've got no chance of building that connection then yeah. whereas if you take it slow and like like your nurse did like didn't push his agenda didn't force the communication just left mm -hmm. that little seed picked up on it came back the next day or whenever it was later that day mm. yeah and just slowly built the that rapport with, mm. with with you and like I've done it in clinical practice before where I've spent weeks just mm. just like without even speaking to someone I've spent weeks there was one guy and I think I've spoken about him on the podcast before where I spent weeks and all I would do was, this is on an acute ward, was to go into the ICU and throw a footy for like 10 mm. minutes a day. And that's all we did for weeks um, mm. until he was ready, until he was comfortable with me, until he felt like he could talk to me. But up until that point, I knew, because I could see from his behavior, that he was bored and... Mm. You know, he seemed to like the football, so that's what we did. He was obviously, he wasn't 
very well at the time. Um, so he couldn't just sort of tell me what he wanted. Uh, and again, like I said, he wasn't comfortable. In, he wasn't talking to anyone. So even mm. after all, like it took me probably five weeks before he would speak to me and then I was the only person. I, up until that point, I was the only person he'd spoken to on his admission and after that, mm. I was the only person he would speak to because I was the only one that actually took the time, took the time and didn't rush it. Like he just let it slow, let it grow almost organically. Mm. Um, I, I think I see too many people with communication is a, a passion of my probably why I started a podcast I don't know um but I see too many people that yeah okay I've got all these skills and I have to implement them and I have to like push them I have to push them and I'm like it doesn't like that because you can't yeah. force someone to like you you just mm. have to essentially put out what you best think is going to be the, you know the, the optimal communication skills in the situation see what mm. gets picked up see what doesn't adjust accordingly and do it that way, but it's sometimes it's gonna take a long time. And I can say from my experience that taking the time and actually giving it the time that it needs, it's so worth it. Mm. It's so worth it for the person and from a personal point of view, it's so much worth it for you your mm. job. You can like your job so much more. Mm. Those you, no, I never underestimate those connections because they can just be amazing. Yeah. The thing that I think about is that we, we've chosen to be healthcare professionals and we've done four years or whatever years to become a healthcare professional, but our patients don't choose to be a patient. They don't choose to be unwell and they are forced often into having interactions with people that are strangers and I think do we put too much pressure on people to open up and give give out themselves to people they don't know? And I really value in my experience of being a consumer is um, healthcare professionals who are quite spiritual in that they dress how they want to dress or they perhaps they've got braids like me or <laughs> perhaps they've um, – I, they've got piercings or they've got a tattoo or just something that I can ask about them and that they're, it's just like a little window for me to see that they're actually a person under the clothing. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I definitely, I, that, actually that same guy, weirdly enough, uh, and this wasn't the reason I was wearing them, but it was after that. The very first thing he actually opened up to me about was my shoes because they were like fluoro, <laughs> fluoro yellow. Yeah. Uh, and that was like the in. And I, after that, when I sort of realized like this, like had a look around, like no one else, like nurses, they all wear the same kind of shoes. They have like yeah. Merrells or like real comfortable and whatever. But I started a ridiculous number of conversations based off my shoes, which is shoes. like you wouldn't normally have gone, oh, yeah, I'm going to buy these shoes. So I started like, like once those wore out, I bought another pair like, Mm. It was just a really useful thing and like they were comfortable and I liked them anyway. I wasn't just buying them for that, but it was amazing how many conversations started because of fluoro yellow shoes. <laughs> and that would probably be the first thing that I would say. Yeah. Like, yeah. Comment on, yeah. Mm. Oh, I forgot what I, oh, it's happened again. That's twice. Damn it. <laughs> it's okay. Broken my record. Um, 
I made lots of notes. <laughs> During or before? Uh, before. Oh. You'd be surprised how many people take notes while we're talking. I'm like, what is, uh, what is this, a lecture? <laughs> um, what's on your notes? Um, Would like to get to, like, actually, let's, let's go there and see where that leads. Um, like I said earlier, there's a lot of stigma around, mm. particularly around borderline personality disorder within uh, mental health health professionals mm-hmm. what's probably the worst or the most damaging one that you you would like to see like you would like to put to bed you would like to abolish what's the worst oh, or the most damaging one so i know there's so many i've heard them many of them i'm sure you've heard more but i think that people with bpd are manipulative i think for me, it's, it comes back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs and really thinking that that's really what they're wanting. Is Yes, they're, maybe they're manipulating the situation so they can get the needs met, but they're not meant to be. It's not that we're trying to manipulate, manipulate you. It's mm. just that we don't know how to communicate our needs. We're trying to do it in our best way. It's not a, it's not a malicious No, thing. it's not. Yeah. Yeah. And I have definitely heard that many times, you know, oh, just ignore what they're doing because, you know, they're just trying to get attention. They're just trying to be manipulative. They're just trying to play this nurse off against that nurse and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and playing people off, yeah, that's another uh, it, it never, <laughs> for me, <laughs> and this is like when I was a new grad, that from the nurses and then obviously not knowing any better, I'm like, oh, okay. So, what do we do? They're like, I oh, just, just leave it, just ignore leave them. It they'll, them. they'll, they'll calm down. They'll, they'll come around, sort of thing. And I was like, okay, that's strange, but all right. If you say so, you know, you're a nurse. You've been doing this for thirty years. You know. Mm. Um, but then I think after a while, I'm like, these people must be like superheroes because if they genuinely are like manipulating this nurse off against that nurse, like. The level of like that, the level of planning that goes into some of the things that some of the nurses have told me happen. I'm like, this is amazing. Like these people are, <laughs> are amazing. I couldn't, I could not work out how to make that nurse and that nurse over there have an argument. Like, I, <laughs> so you're either reading this situation very long, or we've got a ward full of like super villains or something. <laughs> yeah. I- we we want the best outcomes for everybody. <laughs> I don't think, yeah. I hope we haven't ever played someone off another person. Like, yeah. <laughs> but um, I can't can't think that I have. But I think that's, yeah, I think I, it is purely just a, <laughs> a misperception. Yeah, and I think a lot of it comes back to. The change and the traditional thinking of BPD being incurable and that it's untreatable, and that these people are the quotes I've had is like they're a whirlwind of destruction. They only cause harm. Um, they they can't be cured. These thoughts are not they're not accurate. They're not true. People with BPD can be cured. They can not I wouldn't say cured in terms of 100% remission. But they can live purposeful and satisfying lives, but also manage the illness as well. So it, 
it comes back to the person's – I always like to think whenever someone throws a stigmatising comment at me, so I get a lot of them on the website and um, just in general, the worst thing I've had said to me is that you're so selfish and manipulative, you need to be thrown into jail and the key thrown away. And I, when I read that, I was obviously instant cry, but I thought, well – you know what, I've come from a place where I once believed these thoughts that people who self-harmed and had mental illness were manipulative and selfish, and mm. that's what I was often taught. So if people aren't taught or educated or given sort of awareness and proper supervision and training, those those things will stay with that person. They won't know to judge or to critique it. And it's only because I've had this – I once said to someone – be careful of the borderlines. You don't know what they're going to do. That's That came out of my own mouth and I'm so ashamed. Like, But it's only sometimes, and I think it's amazing for the people out there that just advocate for people with BPD who don't have BPD, but for me it took actually having a diagnosis of BPD to realise what I had been for, what I was thinking is totally inaccurate and um, it comes from a, a a scared place or a place of vulnerability that these people don't want to touch. Mm. So that's why they come out with these comments. I've had a, so another counter was that I went to a GP and I had um, self-harm quite, um, quite bad and my arm was infected. And the response that I got from this GP was, why do you do this? Do you do this to punish your parents? That was the comment I got. And <laughs> I, my my normal wow. GP, this was my normal GP. So I ended up just taking the script and leaving and never returning to that clinic again. But then I thought, well, if no one does anything, if no one says that we need more training, these thoughts, these missed opportunities are not are not being taken yeah. to provide care. So other times I've heard about people having self-harm wounds sutured and then people saying you don't need to have the injection, the, the painkillers, because you've inflicted this on yourself. What? Yeah. So really, really horrific. Oh. I've heard, yeah. That's horrendous. I heard anything quite that bad, I don't think. Wow. Mm. That's... Harming is, I think, is we don't sit comfortably with it and I think... People think we do this to hurt ourselves on, I guess, to hurt ourselves on purpose, but yet, yet there's a means behind it. It is a meaningful occupation in some ways. It's a life-sustaining life, um, occupation, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a, it's a coping skill that people just have not. Sometimes the only tool in the bag that you have when you've gone through your whole Maslow hierarchy needs that's all that's left is that. Mm. And is it curious about it with the self-harm? Is it the release from the actual self-harming or is it the response from other people that is the comforting part? So a lot of the time I self-harm is I'm alone and I'm, I lock myself in the bathroom So and my husband is not home. Um, and it's generally at a specific time of the day because that's the time that this particular trauma usually occur. So it's to deal with the emotions that are coming up. And 
for me, as soon as I do it, or even sometimes just thinking about it, it's a natural calming response that goes through my body. And if I'm getting stressed, if it's to a point where I've put in my strategies in place, I've done, I've taken additional medication, I've tried to do everything and follow through, unfortunately, it is the thing that can help me in that situation, not the best thing, but it has been a part of the recovery process and learning to manage that. And it doesn't just come in the form of cutting. There's, I've also, there was, I took, it was a period where I was, um, had disordered eating for a long time, but no one ever thought that was dangerous or thought that, like, I was doing that for attention. It was all, I hated myself and I hated the way I looked. So it was never for external gratification or the response of my husband when he sees my wounds. My husband's quite good in that if he does see my wound, he'll just say, oh, that looks like it really hurts. Looks okay, have you put a bandage on it? And then that's the end of the conversation. So we try to move on quite quickly What if it's happened. Because I think that's one of the misconceptions I've heard a lot uh, with regards to uh, borderline personality and self-harm is that it's for the attention or they want or will you know, cut, it, cut their arm or cut their leg or wherever their preferred area is for the response from health professions the to be uh i've heard i've heard, <laughs> i've heard someone say so that they're seen quicker when they go to ed because they're bleeding oh, no. stuff like it's that not, it's not gonna make it any quicker <laughs> no no eds are uh notoriously not sorry um something for certain things yeah. um but yeah i think the the misconception that I've heard a lot of with regards to self-harm of any kind is that it's for the they, people do it for that external response as mm. opposed to uh, the uh, whether it's emotional suppression or emotional calming or whatever that individual is getting from it. Mm. Reality. Yeah, it's like opposite action. So if you're feeling the days I'm feeling really depressed, if I can, in that split second, say, Laura, get up, get out of bed, and I do it, it's that opposite action. I've, I've got out of, up out of bed. But if sometimes the self-harm can be like that. It can be once I've self-harmed, I've contained that emotion, and now I'm moving on with my day. So it can be, and also that I've done it, yep, let's move on. So it is really hard. It is. A, I think it's a form of containment that people use to try and um, release the emotion and then suppress it and move on. But it does need, and the thing is that a lot of people aren't comfortable talking about it. And, um, particularly I've had a lot of, um, it's been very nerve wracking to walk around the street with my self harm wounds. And I'm getting more and more confidence to do that so that it's not such a taboo thing. I think one of the things that people said to me was that. Laura, you're self-harming. It's it's socially inappropriate, but we don't we don't care if it's socially inappropriate. That's not going to change my reasons for doing it. The reason for doing it is to contain and and look after myself. It's not because I'm thinking I'm being inappropriate or yeah. that sort of the aftermath you have to deal with. But it's what we're trying to live and try and get through the everyday. That's yeah. what we're thinking about. So one of, one of the other things that I've heard quite often, and I'm, I'm sure you've probably heard this as well uh, with your involvement with 
especially community mental health teams, is that people with borderline personality disorder are difficult to work with. Uh, mm. uh, I've heard people say that it's almost like the too hard basket on terms mm. of like their caseload and that kind of thing. And I know that from my personal experience, not necessarily my personal experience working with people with borderline, but my personal experience of hearing other health professionals through the, I guess, the beginning of my career say that almost mm. set it up for me, you know, when I was four or five years out, that I was scared to work with <laughs> anyone who had borderline because I'm like, I've been hearing all this stuff like they're so difficult to work with and, you know, all of the other stigma that we've already talked about around like they just do things for attention and blah, 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 blah. And the fact that they, in the teams that I was in, people with borderline were only ever given to like the really experienced clinicians. Yeah. I think set it up for me in my head that I'm like, I can't do this. I don't know how, I don't know mm. how to work with these people. I don't know what to do. Like what happens if, you know, one of them hurts themselves and like, what do I do and blah, blah, blah. And I think just that, that narrative. And the reason I, I say that narrative is I, I've heard it across multiple districts. I've heard it through multiple teams. It seems to be mm. something that's, fairly common through mental health teams mm. is that something you've had heard or had experience with and that yeah. kind of thing even when i um before i was diagnosed with bpd I, I didn't want to work with bpd clients i was afraid that i wouldn't be good enough like that i, I would cause harm or that i wouldn't know how to respond effectively um and recently someone asked me who would you rather see would you rather see a uh, someone older who has years and years of experience or would you rather see someone younger? And my natural response is I would actually prefer to see someone younger because I think that they haven't been tainted by um, the views of what is in the mental health system about people with BPD. And to be honest, we're not, we're not scary and that's something that I like to get across is that if you connect with someone similar age, it can actually make a very big difference to that person's recovery. And working with older people, I, I find that traditionally, I'm being very stereotypical, is that the traditional people who have worked in the mental health force have done a great job. But And also sometimes there is also a need for has the mental health system or landscape changed in the views towards these people and are my views accurate at the moment? And I think the new grads that are coming through have a better look I'm really fortunate where I am to see new graduates who are actually wanting to talk to me about BPD and wanting to open up about their own experiences with different challenges or have our own placement and ask me, Laura, I've got a BPD patient. Can I have some supervision or some sort, some sort of support? That they're not afraid, that they actually want to have experiences. And then they do come back and say, I have a place with supervisor who has said, said this about BPD and I found that really sad. And then I, I just, I thank them for sharing their experience and just ask them to continually reflect. Is that accurate? Is that true? Yeah. Is it? Um, one, I was giving a lecture once and someone turned around and said, you know what? My supervisor said all people with BPD are manipulated. And I said, well, um, giving this lecture, are you getting that sense? And she's like, no. 
Do you feel and- manipulated? <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, you know what, I think that maybe I need to reflect and journal about that experience and perhaps I need in the future to have a strong supervisor who is a little bit more, um, I guess, in line with consumer views and the peer workforce as well. And that's, that's I think that's exactly uh, your students are super lucky to have you there and be able to set them straight out of uni with a much better perspective than, you know, most people get after years of clinical practice. Um, and uh, that's one of the reasons why, like, I really wanted to, to have you on the podcast is I've had a few people, like I've had um, Rachel who's uh, who has schizophrenia, I've had people who have uh, struggled with alcohol addiction, mm. that kind of stuff. Like, I, I feel I'm a, I'm a strong advocate for people actually getting... I guess a real lived experience of different conditions rather than just what their health profession or other people they know might, you know, it's like Chinese whispers, like what they might say about it third hand kind of thing. Mm. Um, I feel that hopefully people that are listening will, similar to your students, be able to take from this away and reflect on it and whether they're working in mental health or not, Mm. you know, you're going to see people with mental health conditions in any practice area that you, Mm. you, you're in. Like, it's not just if you're on an acute mental health ward, you're not, you're not like void or like people with mental health conditions get sick and, Mm -hmm. you know, have injuries and, you know, have kids who, have you know, developmental delays and like you're going to more than likely you've seen people who have mental health conditions mm-hmm. already even if you didn't know so yeah. i think having or lived experience and i guess being able to quash some of the the stigma and quash some of the misconceptions around around borderline i think is is amazingly valuable now and I can only imagine how valuable it is, like f- directly for your students having you there. So that's that's really awesome. Thank you. Oh, you're more than welcome. Um, what else have you got on your notes? I'm curious now. <laughs> um, what else? What else would you like to make sure that we cover or that we we get across? Uh, if there is anything. Pressure. I think we've managed. I'm just thinking. Um, people. Another question is that: Do we should we admit people with BPD to the inpatient setting, or should we leave them in the community? Okay. I think that. Yeah, I think that's a really challenging question. And there's times where I've really, really needed to be admitted to inpatient settings because I've had a suicide attack, mm-hmm. and that needs containment and support and crisis support but there's also times when i've said i need to be admitted to my psychiatrist and he said no so it's very it's can be hard and i think it is very hard for the profession mental health professions professionals to know what what do we do in these situations and i think it comes back to using your evidence and looking at um that rapport that you've got with that person and the trust and the safety plan in place and it also, it also is back to that person is that 
is being an inpatient the best place for you and your skills? Mm. Because going to inpatient, it's fantastic. It's like being on holiday sometimes because everything's done for you <laughs> and it is that respite you need. Yep. But coming out, it's it's extremely hard. It's harder than what it was when you were out. So unless it's going to give you that res- resilience and that space, that need um, for time out, and to build you up so that you can get back out in the community, it can actually be um, a, a stepping back. So it's it is hard when people ask me, should I should people be admitted when they have BPD? I think yes, but I really think for short admissions, not for long pe- periods. And that that seems to be, in my experience, that seems to be the uh, I guess common dis among psychiatrists is the mm. short admissions for. Uh, either respite or support. Sometimes, quite often, I like I've worked with people who would have maybe like three or four overnight admissions per mm-hmm. month, kind of thing. And it was just for really short, high support respite mm-hmm. from whatever is going on for them. You know, usually that day, uh, and then the next morning they're okay, and mm-hmm. and they go home for a bit. Um, I I. 100% get where you're coming from when it comes to do we admit them. Uh, I've, I think one of the issues for, for some people probably is when you just go to ED, you're not necessarily seeing anyone that you've had a rapport with or that you've mm. seen before. And quite often, like if anyone has ever worked in ED or even been in an ED, it's a really fast-paced, loud, noisy, rapid, people are trying to smash out paperwork and interviews and everything's under the pump. Even when it's quiet, everything's under the pump. Mm. Um, And it's not necessarily a place where, I guess, rapport building is prioritised because Mm. of that time pressure. So if you do show up to an ED and you are talking with someone who you don't already know or you don't already have any rapport with, there's a good chance you're probably not going to get a lot of it, which, mm-hmm. as we've discussed already, is, you know, it's going to be a trigger in itself. Uh, it's going to it's gonna be, you're not going to open up. It can stop those needs from being met that you may be chasing to be met. In, in essence, it's probably going to make the situation seem, from the outside, worse. Worse, yeah. Potentially, and I've seen this happen, it then, because those needs aren't being met, behaviours escalate in order to try and get those needs met. And from the clinician's point of view, who may not know anything else or know any any better because they're not familiar with the person they're talking with, it seems like the person is purely essentially upping the ante to try and get admitted as opposed to they're just not getting their needs met and this is the... Na- I, I, I kind of think of that as if you've ever been struggling for air, whether you you know were under mm. the water or whatever, you're going to do whatever it takes. You thrash, you kick, you punch, whatever it takes, get mm. air. Mm. If whatever you're doing isn't working, you're gonna do something else. It's all it's a a biological kind of survival mechanism yes. that you're going mm. to do whatever the next step is. And if that's not working, you're gonna go to the next level to try and get there. Yeah, you need to breathe. Mm. We need we have these basic human needs. 
We know them. We're very familiar with them right through any health course. Even just a basic science course will probably teach you that. And some of you probably even heard it in high school. Either way, we're very familiar with basic human needs. So I think being able to look at that situation easy for me from the outside, like looking down over like this person's interviewing this person and they're not familiar and blah, 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 blah. In the heat of the moment, I can see where I guess the stigmatized ideas come from a health professional side because they're not mm. like they're, they're in that situation. It's hard to see that situation or put distance between yourself and the situation yeah. at that time. But I think if it's someone that you're like, so the, one of the things we used to do uh, when I was working in community was anytime any of our clients, if they had any anyone, but uh, especially the the clients that would ha- had borderline, would show up to ED, we would go and do the assessment. Mm-hmm. So we were very familiar with them. The guys in ED knew us and they knew our clients and would you know just ring us essentially and say such and such is here do you want to come and have a chat yep sweet that more so and and we weren't necessarily trying to prevent admissions Mm. although the service would probably like us to say that we were but we were there to prevent distress Mm. like Mm. common uh, a common thing not just in borderline but like anyone is trauma caused by a health service and a big part of that is having to explain your story over and over again to a thousand different people when there's one person that knows it really well and why can't you just Mm. deal with them and i've heard that's that story from hundreds of people Mm. i think it makes it even worse or more traumatic when part of that story is actually trauma and you have to explain that and relive that with uh, you know a hundred different health professionals who are all coming at it from uh like they're they're doing it from a good place they're doing it because that's the job and you know they care and etc etc but they're not looking at it from a service point of view on that individual where that individual's already been through that story and sort of relive mm-hmm. some of those possibly traumatic moments with social worker before them and the nurse that was in here before that mm. and the psychiatrist that they saw a week ago and the case manager that they've seen every two weeks, blah, blah, blah. Like reliving it over and over and over again yep. can then cause more trauma than is already there kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's, it's hard, like you were saying, I think it would be hard, but I think being able to look at the the individual's involvement with the service as a whole you can then put in some plans around like if you know if i show up to ed mm. and it's possible because you know some people work shift work sometimes they're not on staff but can i even if it's over the phone can i speak to this individual because mm. they're very familiar with me um and then that person might be able to you know talk to the psychiatrist or talk to whoever needs advocating um but you can put in plans. Right. Yes. Yeah. Is Remover's truck outside? Oh. You tell him. We've got hard, hard rubbish coming through. So 
Ah, uh, we'll okay. Yeah. <laughs> the street pickup. Yeah. Lily. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, lucky I've got headphones in. Otherwise, he he would go nuts if he heard another dog barking in in his room. <laughs> hey, buddy. Fast asleep. <laughs> oh, look at you, you big toughy. She's overweight. Has been eating all the cat food. <laughs> <laughs> nice. The um, vet said she needs to go on a diet, but I think she's she's just cuddly. She's just cuddly, yeah. <laughs> and obviously, cat food's delicious. I think I get asked the question: Can you be an OT with BPD? Yeah. Or yeah. Um, mental illness, and my answer is definitely yes. You can be. OT is such a diverse career. You can do anything in OT. I think it just comes back to building on your own skills and knowing what are the boundaries I need to have in place to protect myself and protect the clients that you see. So, for example, for me, I don't provide any one-on-one direct interventions with clients at the moment because I know that that's not a space I can do at the moment. But I really love being on an online forum and providing health promotional activities and and health education because I can do that in a way that's contributing. Yeah. Um, so I think don't, even if you get a diagnosis, because I know a lot of OTs out there do get a diagnosis of some sort of mental health condition. It doesn't not, it, it doesn't mean that your career has ended and that you should pull out the course. There are supports out there to help you get through the course and hopefully a supportive tutor or educator that can be there for you in navigating where to get the, the help to get through the course. And really the world is, there's so many um, with peer lived experience positions now and, and um, people wanting people that are actually an OT with a lived experience is there's new emerging super roles. valuable. Yeah. And I think that um, I've been in an interview and I've said that I have a lived experience and it actually helped me get the job. So and now my lived experience is being more incorporated into the course and the teaching yeah. I provide. So I think that it's such a valuable strength that you have to be able to use and help um, your patients in other ways, regardless of you whether you say, yes, I have this diagnosis. It's just about understanding and empathy. Yeah. yeah but also... Awesome. A big part of it is knowing that you need to look after yourself and having that self-care there. Um, I think a lot of new graduates go out ready to tackle the world and that first year is extremely hard and that's where you need. The world tackles back. <laughs> yeah, the world tackles back. You need, that self, you need that support, that self-care. And I really highly encourage every OT out there to have a psychologist or a counsellor because it's you go through so many experiences in the, the career that make you challenge so many of your memories or just they're quite emotive experiences. So you need someone to to vent to and to to get through tough situations. Really, and you know, we come full circle. We're talking about setting up your environment again. You need to set up <laughs> need to set up your, your support environment, especially the new grads. Like that's a really difficult transition. And mm. I think in a lot of cases the profession throughout the course has potentially been a little bit sugar coated and then it's a, almost a bit of a reality check when you get out there that 
oh shit, like this is a bit different to case studies and placements and stuff where I'm working with tons of support and then all of a sudden I'm doing this mm. on my own kind of thing. So yeah. you need to set up your own, like like similar to like you did with your, your I've forgotten what you grow, called it, grow, grow group. group, that's it. Set up your own grow group, like set yeah. up a, a, a peer support network, set up, mm. you know, connect. There's, there's a lot of them already out there for OT, like connect with them, mm. get involved. Uh, you're going to have supervision through your work. Make the most of it. Don't just blow yes. it off as, you know, another thing I've got to do. Like it can be really valuable, but it's only going to be as valuable as the effort that you put into it. Mm. There's heaps mm. of stuff like, vent to your partner if they're willing to to take that on some of them get a bit confused and still don't know what we do but that's okay like there's your opportunity to teach them that can be a good vent uh set up your environment for your success i think is a a really valuable valuable lesson from that Mm. yeah so you're i don't know what to call it is it a business or a project ot for bpd what would you call it um, at the moment, yeah, it's turning into a not-for-profit. So I'm taking that next step. So at the moment, it's been sort of like a project, and now it's, it's got to a point where um, I really want to branch out and, and take that next step in the community by, by becoming a not-for-profit. Uh, and what's the or what was the initial aim for it? Like, what what did you? Why did you start it? I uh, started it because I didn't know what OT did for BPD <laughs> and I wanted I wanted to learn and I wanted to share my experience of how I'm using occupation with my life with BPD. And it was also to create awareness and advocacy for people who are struggling with the lip um, in having the diagnosis. I've also, um, it's also a place where I provide support for people who have a lived experience of a mental health condition and um, you, there's also practice resources that I provide for clinicians to use and implement in their practice. So things that I found overwhelming that I was given are probably tailored and adapted in a way that it could be a little bit more user-friendly or um, a little bit more OT-based in some of the strategies that we use, we use in practice. Um, the idea is that I'm looking at an op shop and I would like to, and I'm also looking at different peer support models of providing mental health in the community, um, like those typical, like those um, clubhouse models where peers are very actively engaged in providing the support to other peers. Um, so I'm looking at that and I'm hoping to look at an op shop and helping people learn employment skills or learn how to get dressed for work and come to the, and volunteer at an op shop and have an OT there who provides training, helps with communication, helps with money handling, helps with job interviews and then helps them move on to finding another place of employment. So but these are just ideas, but it's I guess it's still, still really early days for me and um, I'm really – but I'm really keen in finding out what it is that I want to merge into into the community. Yeah. 
That's awesome. And so the website is ot4bpd.com and just having mm-hmm. to flick through it, like there's a heap of stuff that it looks like you're building into this. There's a heap of resources uh, for clinicians and students, uh, which yeah. is which is rad. Um, and I'm sure like it'll all be stuff that you've sort of put together. There's also a blog. Yep, yeah. I also have some guest um, people that come on, guest writers. And at the moment I'm developing some online modules for consumers that look at different aspects of health. So oh, sorry, health, so like sleep, um, how to make, make a simple meal um, with video tutorials. And, That's very um, OT of you. Yeah, very, just things that I've really struggled with and how I've tried to make it, what I've learned through different ways um, through being an inpatient or being outpatient and, and and using my OT sort of lens on things, yeah. Because I know you've, like, the uh, the blog is something I'm really keen for because, again, I like narratives and I like people's stories and I, I know that you've written for other websites like The Mighty. You've got a couple mm. of things up there. Uh, and, again, similar to, to just talking with you today, like your experience comes across really well in in your your blog so that's something i think like we can link to that stuff in the show notes if people want to have a read but there's some really really valuable ways i think from the Mm -hmm. the stuff that you you put out there and i think it's it's really it's really important and it's really brave and I, I don't know how uncomfortable you feel obviously if you're really nervous coming to do this podcast it must be some level of uncomfort bringing yourself out there for this stuff and uh, yeah. and from from me personally I, I thank you enough because like I've even in this chat like I've learned so much more and my perspective has changed um, even to what I you know based on all my clinical practice like my perspective my perception now has even changed even more um, Thank you. with regards to working with and, and talking with and even just on a communication level of the needs of someone with a borderline personality disorder. I had it explained to me once by a, a psychiatrist, probably one of the best psychiatrists I ever worked with on an acute unit that he described um, someone or what someone's going through with borderline as kind of like a, a boat in a really rough storm and it's, you know, ups and downs and it's all over the place and they don't feel like they've got any control and they just go wherever they're pushed. And he described what they need from a health professional as being a really strong anchor that Mm. where in his metaphor was that no matter where the waves are pushing, like that person is there, that person is, um, Grounded. Is grounded, is strong, is able to be strong for for the individual, uh, and I think that that was years ago that he told me that, and I think that metaphor uh, kind of fits perfectly with with everything that you've you've described today. So yeah, I, I can't thank you enough for being raw and being honest and, and sharing yourself with me and with with everyone else who who listens. So. Thank, Thank you. you. I hope, yeah, I hope I tend to make up words when I'm nervous. So, <laughs> thank you. I hope it's it's made sense. <laughs> if you made up words, 
then they must be very good ones because I didn't pick up that you'd say anything <laughs> out of the ordinary. So that's always a win. <laughs> well, nothing wrong with new words. We could probably do with a few more. <laughs> Thank you. Um, um, where just... do you want me? Oh, where where can people find? So there's the website. Um, where else can people find you if they're they're looking for you yeah. online? So I'm on LinkedIn, so you can just find me by searching Laura Thayer, which is T-H-Y-E-R. And then I am on Instagram with OT for BPD. Uh, the, the web, the Facebook page is OT for BPD and the website is also OT for BPD. So, Very um, easy to keep, find. <laughs> Um, there, I just wanted to thank also some external resources that have been really helpful for me and yeah, sure. my journey. So particularly Monash um, and my Monash supervisor who's helping me with writing my PhD at the moment. And then there's the Australian BPD Foundation. So at the moment they're coming up with a national strategy training, training strategy for people uh, working with BPD and that should be coming out next year but it looks really fantastic. And they do a lot of advocacy around BPD week, which I think is in, we've just had it. So I think it might be September, October. Um, and also Project Air is a fantastic resource for people to get information for consumers or um, carers. And there's great fact sheets on there as well. Another really good book, which I read when I was first diagnosed is Understanding and Treating Borderline Personality Disorder, a guide for professional and families. Uh, it's by John Gundensen and Perry Hoffman. So unfortunately, Perry Hoffman has just passed away. But this this book is absolutely fantastic. So there's a new edition out, but it breaks it down to really simple under, uh, simple terms just to understand what is BPD. And, yeah, thank you so much for having me on here and, and being able to break down my questions and 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 um, being able to help make sense of the narrative as well. <laughs>